It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We're dealing with more threats than we've ever dealt with before. We're dealing with more data than we've ever dealt with before. And we're dealing with it at a speed we've never dealt with before. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Ben Scott, a Senior Advisor here at the National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. We're going to be talking about the future of intelligence, about how the digital information revolution is changing the operating environment for intelligence agencies, and about how these agencies should adapt to this new world. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Barbara Stevens. Dr. Stevens is a member of the Board of Directors at Hexagon US Federal. She's also a consultant for Exavera, an open source intelligence company. She served in the CIA for 35 years as an executive leader and manager, building and then directing complex data science programs. Barbara holds a PhD in mathematics and statistics from Florida State University. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great. Let's start with the information environment. Many of us now feel overwhelmed by the abundance of easily available information. The only constraints on finding things out seems to be the time and effort we're willing to spend Googling. With so much publicly available information, is there still a role for traditional secret intelligence? And if so, what is it? That's a great question. You know, I think we're all being inundated with lots of information, open source information, and I think it's a good question, what's the role of secret intelligence in today's world? I do believe that our intelligence organizations need to get better at dealing with open source information. Traditionally, and you know, throughout my time as an intelligence analyst, we were really focused on that secret nugget of information, trying to ferret out what we could from, you know, classified sources. And every now and then augmenting that with the occasional open source report. I really think that today we're in an environment where so much is available in the open source world that we need to turn around our thinking and focus more on what's available in open source, distilling those facts and then trying to fill in the gaps with that special secret intelligence that, that I do think there's a role for, a definite role for. I mean, particularly thinking about traditional human intelligence. You know, there's nothing that will replace someone who's speaking to uh, a set of leaders and knows exactly what those people are thinking and so forth. Uh, there's nothing to replace that. But many, many things can be gleaned through open source in my view today. And particularly in, you know, an area where we have so many more diverse threats that we're dealing with than we ever have in the past. And so much more data. If you look at 
I mean, I've read the, you know, the volumes of data are increasing, doubling every year or two now. Uh, it's, it's just incredible how much information we have to deal with. So the real question, I think, is how do you distill those massive amounts of data into understanding what's actually good data and how do we um, collate that for making sense of what's going on in the world today? Right, right. I, I just want to pick up on that point about the, the, inf- the way the information environment is changing, particularly the volume. I mean, the other way you often hear the digital environment often described is in terms of the three Vs. So there's the increasing volume, but also the variety and velocity of data. Um, and there's obviously a lot more information out there. But on the other hand, we're also seeing the spread of digital encryption, assertions of digital sovereignty, and what's often called the fragmentation of the internet. So is there a, a better way to try and understand this new environment than the way it's often framed as, oh, there's much more information publicly and and far fewer secrets correspondingly, for example? I mean, I think those are all really good questions. And I think that the issue today is how do we distinguish disinformation or what someone wants us to 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 hear and to to listen to from actual information and i think this is going to become the key question of the future and i do believe this is going to bleed into other types of information as well secret information um i don't think anyone is exempt from it but i think the key is trying to understand of the open source information what is disinformation and what is not? And that's going to be increasingly more difficult. And I think this just brings to light the reason why we need to have smart intelligence analysts looking at this information, people with critical thinking skills, people that can um, think about how to distinguish fact from fiction, along with a set of sophisticated tools to try and stay ahead of our adversaries who are attempting to flood the internet with their particular views and so forth. Right, right. Yeah, these these two things seem to be happening at the same time and maybe they're kind of flip sides, for want of a better word, of, of the, the new information environment or the digital information revolution. On the one hand, as you said, the, the incredible increase in misinformation and disinformation and understanding those as national security threats. And at the same time, this extraordinary rise of open source intelligence, this concept introduced earlier, or OSINT, as we often call it, OSINT really coming into its own as a discipline. I mean, particularly, I would say, in the war in Ukraine, I was seeing it more recently, some instances with the conflict in Gaza. Can you you just talk to us a bit more about OSINT? I mean, what is OSINT? What's the difference between OSINT and publicly available information? Uh, What are the strengths and weaknesses of OSINT when we compare it to, to... traditional secret intelligence, for example, or is it just the same thing but in an unclassified form or version? I think that what what is OSINT sort of bleeds into, if you will, the secret space. Um, I think of OSINT and the companies that I work with who, who gather open source information. What they view as open source are things that they can find available on the internet albeit perhaps behind firewalls in countries that normally that you and I wouldn't be able to get to by just Googling in the United States or Australia. But they're not things that are per se stolen, if you will, or gotten by some nefarious method. But I do say that this bleeds into it because now if you think about all of the um, open source platforms that are available today, they're, they're commercial geoint platforms, they're commercial SIGINT platforms, 
that you might say, well, that is that open source information as well? And I don't exactly know how I would answer that. In a sense, it's open source because it was collected by some commercial authority who wasn't using any particular secret authority to collect that information. It was kind of open source. I, I don't know. I think that's that's a, a gray area and a very good question. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one I've been wondering about because uh, so Australia is having and conducting another review of the intelligence uh, agencies or the NIC as we call it here. As you might know, we do one about every four or five years and the uh, next one is coming out middle of next year in the process of, of taking submissions at the moment. And one of the questions they've been asked is whether the existing classification systems are, are fit for purpose that, that the intelligence community uses, which is, you know, basically there is secret information and unclassified information. There are some nuances, but that's really what they're getting at. Um, and it's a question I've been wondering about because I can see how it doesn't really fit with, with the current world we're in. As you were saying, there's a, there's a lot of gray zone. There's there's kind of a kind of OSINT that is done, uh, working behind firewalls, working against digital encryption, doing things that private companies can do sometimes better than governments can do. Uh, but is that is that OSINT or is that traditional intelligence? Hard to really say. And do we need new classification systems to accommodate that. So, sorry, there's a bunch of thoughts there, but do, do, do you have any thoughts on those issues? So, I mean, it's a very good question. And I think working, for example, with companies like ExoVera, I think that they think about their information as sensitive, but clearly not classified, of course, because they have no classification authority, right? They're right. an open commercial company. But right. they do understand the sensitivity of the information and sometimes the fragility of the information. You know, if an open source company has been able to acquire some um, gold nugget from behind the firewall in, in a co- adversarial country and then they advertise it on their website or on the news, then that uh, avenue that they acquired it by – albeit open source, will probably disappear. Somebody will realize that that shouldn't be openly available and they're going to close that down. And I I think that's happened in a number of cases. As to whether or not we need another classification system, I I don't know. I think think more and more uh, commercial companies are going to be the solution of, of choice for getting this type of information because there's so much more of it today that people, companies like ExoVera will specialize in certain areas. You know, for example, with ExoVera, they have some huge number of Chinese linguist analysts who are able to look at things in natural language and distill down what's the important part here that we might want to actually acquire and pull up as opposed to uh, just sort of grabbing everything that you can grab, which is a problem, right? right? Analysts today in the intelligence community don't have time to go through every possible piece of information you could pull off the internet. So I think it's, in my view, the intelligence analysis of the future needs some sort of partnership with the private companies where they can acquire high-value information, not necessarily high-volume if that makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I really want to come back to that issue of public-private partnerships a bit later on, but just pausing on on that, so on that whole question of uh, commercial intelligence organisations and what's often called commercially available information, so CAI as a subset of publicly available information, PAI, 
is, is the, the terminology often used. So there was a recent ODNI report into CACAI, which I found quite fascinating, um, especially for this, this, this bit which I want to read out, which is, says that commercially available information includes information on nearly everyone is of a type and the level of sensitivity that historically could have been obtained, if at all, only through targeted collection. That's quite an extraordinary statement, really, when you think about it. And, you know, this, I, I have two reactions to it at the same time. One, as a uh, as, as an, a former intelligence officer, is that sounds incredibly useful. I'd love to get a lot of that information. But the second one is, as, a, as an Australian citizen living in a liberal democracy, what are the privacy rules constraining this? Um, so the ODNI report was really focused more on the privacy issues rather than the potential collection issues. But just on that privacy question, how should how should how should governments ban it? Uh, balance their use of, of commercially available information of this sort and protecting the privacy of their own citizens? Well, this is not my area of expertise, so I need to say that up front. But I sure. believe that the intelligence organizations understand, and both of our countries understand quite well, what they can and cannot look at with regard to privacy considerations for the for all of us who are private citizens as well. And the advantage of the commercially available information is, I believe, they can turn to their commercial partners and say, you will not provide us the following types of information. So you need to make sure that is not in the information that we are acquiring from you. So that's sort of the first level of defense, I think. Then I do, and I, then I do believe and know that once the information comes in, there is some verification, right? That we're not collecting and gathering lots of information on our own citizens, which would be against the law. Right. So that really goes to how our governments and our intelligence agencies should approach this issue of this this uh, e- e- extraordinary potential of commercially available information. Of course, the other side of it is that our adversaries, unconstrained by privacy legislation, are taking advantage of this same pool of information. Um, so I, I want to turn now to the question of how intelligence organisations should change to to accommodate this new reality. And I want to quote from another recently released ODNI report, which is the ODNI data strategy, which frames the challenge like this. And again, I'm going to quote, our nation has entered a new period of strategic competition. It is no longer just about the volume of data. It is about who can collect, access, exploit, and gain actionable insight the fastest as they will have the decision and intelligence advantage. Is that a good way to describe the challenge? I do think that's a great way to describe the challenge. As you know, I said back at the beginning, we're dealing with more threats than we've ever dealt with before. We're dealing with more data than we've ever dealt with before. And we're dealing with it at a speed we've never dealt with before. I think back to, you know, looking back through history, if you think about the time, for example, in the U.S. during the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy had something like 13 days to decide about what he was going to do after the U-2 spy planes discovered those secret missiles in Cuba. 13 days is an incredibly long period of time when you right. think about today, right? And on 9-11, President Bush certainly didn't have 13 days to respond. And I think that if we think about what kind of crises we might be facing in the future, we could think about that maybe being like we're in a 13-minute type of situation. So I think it's a, it's very critical 
to realize that we're in a situation where not just having the data, but being able to get through that and understanding the assessments very quickly is is important. And I do think that the intelligence community is going to have to think about how to remain in that fast space when we're when we're essentially competing, if you will, with commercial um, commercial entities who have that ability to to do speed. Right? Yeah. They're more agile than our than our governments are. So in my mind, that's why we have to think about these public-private partnerships and how to tie up closely with with all kinds of companies that can assist with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the, the, the other side of that speed question is we have to remember that the decision makers that intelligence organizations are trying to inform and help shape and improve their decision space have their own sources of data which, which move much faster and we have to understand them as well. We have to know what a senior leader is seeing on their phone, what their Twitter feed or their X feed tells them, what other sources they have, um, and somehow get into that space and, and be able to influence the way that that's received uh, to filter out misinformation, disinformation. Is that part of the challenge as well? I think it is part of the challenge, and part of the challenge is to prove that you have value added to that feed that I have coming through on my phone on a right. you know minute by minute basis. And I, but I think that the the value add is there, and it is the analytic judgment that goes along with how to distill all that information that's coming through on your phone. So I'm I'm not meaning to say that there's not a place for intelligence analysis. I think there's a, a critical place for it. It's just a question of how do you make sure you're not as a as a government, you're not delivering sort of yesterday's news tomorrow, right? You've got to right. do it uh, in real time. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Let's turn in a bit more detail now to the specifics of how intelligence organisations should, should meet these challenges that we've laid out. What, what sort of tools, what sort of technologies, what sort of new relationships do they need or do we need to be able to do that? Well, since large language models are all the, you know, all the news these days, I think that's maybe a good place to start because yeah. with the... You know, over the last six months with ChatGPT coming on online and, you know, everyone's seen how that went from, you know, one user to a million almost overnight. And I think we're seeing how the ChatGPT type capabilities are transforming sort of every area of our life. You know, we're hearing about in schools now 
there's rules coming out so your child can't use chat GPT to write their essay and so forth. And um, I think the challenge is how do we capitalize on those tools in a way that we can have a handle on them and make sure that we're still giving a human in the loop assessment at the end of the day? How can they assist us in being faster, but not take over the assessment? So I think that's the challenge. And I believe that all of our governments are trying to look at this and figure out how to harness it at the moment. But that's going, it's going to be a, a game changer in trying to summarize information for us quickly. Yeah, I, I, I read recently, I think it was a Bloomberg article, which uh, quoted the head of CIA's open source enterprise saying that CIA was developing a chat GPT-like tool, uh, was developing, has, hasn't developed yet for intelligence analysts. A couple of questions about that. I mean, do you have any thoughts on how that would work in practice? In particular, it wasn't clear to me whether he was talking about something that would be used just for processing open sources or which would be able to ingest secret intelligence as well. Um, one question. Other question, this is probably more for many of our listeners, why is it that intelligence organisations need their own tools to do things like these? Why can't they just take tools that are already available on the market, like ChatGPT, and use them as they are? Well, the head of the open source enterprise is a good friend of mine, and you should probably have a podcast with him for all those specific details. But I can tell you that the open source enterprise is, is, as he said in the article, is kind of offering the sort of first pilot for how to use uh, chat GPT-like tools for intelligence analysis. And the obvious place to start is open source, right? Because it's the easiest environment to start in. I'm, I'm quite certain that all of our intelligence services are going to want a chat GPT-like tool on the high side as well. It's just a question of how do you select the tool and how do you bring it in so that it gets trained on your information, not all of the disinformation available on the internet today. And that's one of the problems with chat GPT, right? It's trained on everything, good information and bad information. And of course, we're going to have to work on uh, the, the ultimate question of how do you use that properly? How do you put the right prompt in to get the information that you want back? Right. To your question of why does the intelligence community n- not buy tools? Why do they have to build their own? I, I don't think that's a true statement. I think the intelligence community often buys tools and uses them. Uh, I mean, we're all using Microsoft 365, or but we all use open source tools in, in many instances. I think that the, often the key is for, for exquisite um, specialized problems, sometimes specialized tools are needed. And that's why the intelligence community has highly, um, highly trained experts to create those tools on the inside. But similarly, very often they use and adapt tools on the outside. Right. I think the, the bigger question is, how do you determine which tool is best to use when commercial industry has a plethora of tools and everyone wants to sell them to the intelligence community? So how does the government distinguish which is the actual tool that I need that's going to provide benefit vice these 10 others that sound like they're going to do that? But when you look into the details, there really isn't anything behind them. I think that's the much more difficult question for the government today. Yeah, that is difficult. So is is that just a typical government procurement problem um, with, 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 with the same challenges or is there something particular to it about uh, intelligence community obtaining uh, 
cutting edge technology and is there a way around it? In my opinion, it's it's more difficult today. I mean, I think everything is more difficult. Wasn't it easier when we had sort of one enemy and we could take several months to do an assessment on that enemy? Uh, but with the spread of chat GPT-like tools and every company now is becoming an AI company and every potential defense contractor and non-defense contractor who wishes they were in the defense arena want to get in and show their tools. And it's very difficult for, you know, the number of people that we have running our technology enterprises is not endless. So how much time in the day do they have to meet with these various people and try and discern whether or not this is a tool I want? I think that, um, at least within the U.S., I think they're looking at, at how to become more um, quick with the acquisition process and thinking about some right. some unique ways to think about dealing with this problem. I, I know they're working on that. And I think that's a critical aspect to try and figure out creative ways to ferret out which companies could provide really good support and how do we get that on contract quickly. Right, right. How much of the challenge is is finding the right tool uh, to to deal with processed all this data and get it to the to the point of uh, decision and intelligence advantage faster. And how much of it is actually to do with the data, with the data being in shape, uh, uh, organized, uh, tagged, whatever you want to call it, in a way that can be used by, by the new technology. I mean, there are. Th- there are, I think there are three dependencies to being able to use to these tools effectively. One is having the infrastructure in place to have the tools work. The second is having the data set up so that it can talk to the tools and be useful. And the third is to have the um, analytic expertise, if you will, to use the tools and the data. And I think in all three of those areas, we we have work to do, Right. Yeah, I don't think we're, you know, any of us are where we wish we would be from my perspective. There's there's definite progress, but there's definite room for improvement. Sure, sure. Uh, on, on that point, I, I, I just want to be a bit of a devil's advocate here um, and say, on the one hand, you know, we hear quite optimistic things about how the IC is adapting to the new environment, uh, looking to acquire new, these, these new technologies, on the other hand, there's lots of IC veterans out there you can hear expressing a lot of skepticism, uh, saying they've heard all this before, uh, that the IC has been talking about adapting to OSINT uh, for, you know, 25 years um, and and lagging and not, not meeting expectations, uh, often promising new tools, and those new tools arrive late, and by the time they're, they're used, they're a bit clunky and out of date. Uh, you don't have to answer that question, but I, I, I'm just going to ask if, if, if you have a response to it. Well, look, I'm not going to be one of those retired Intel professionals complaining <laughs> about my former organization because I, <laughs> I do feel like they're uh, they're moving ahead. They're doing the things that need to be done. Of course, it's a big organization, so things are going to move more slowly than anyone might like them to. But they need to move in a way so that we're, you know, we make sure that things like privacy considerations are taken into account, that whatever tools we're using are not 
uh, producing biased results. And right. so I, I think some moving along a pace, but carefully is important. And I, I, I do think that's what's happening. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that I'm back supporting that effort in my former organization, because I think it's an important effort and they're moving forward. And, you know, I think we all hope they are successful in that. Right, right. What about cultural change? I mean, something else you often read is that this is really the main impediment to change. I mean, in bureaucracies generally, but particularly in secret intelligence organizations, uh, that the kind of fundamental obstacle to really adapting to this new environment and changing generally is this culture of secrecy uh, in, in, in the intelligence community. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, culture is always the problem for change, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's always the big problem. And I think, you know, that's one reason that, you know, our intelligence communities are standing up things like, you know, having an office of artificial intelligence to try and help not only bring in tools and organized data, but to help with that cultural change and to educate people. I know that, um, you know, just educating folks on what uh, artificial intelligence can do for their mission. I think once people are educated, they're generally excited about the potential for it helping their jobs. But right. education is just a huge effort, and I think that's part of the culture change. So I'm sure all of our organizations are spending a lot of time and effort in the education space, trying to bring up people's knowledge of what artificial intelligence can do and how important it is to consider data and data veracity and data bias and so forth in your assessments. I mean, I think everyone, uh, you know, agrees that there's too much data to just deal with it the way we used to, right? So we have to do something new. Right. Just finally, uh, another response to this problem that you often read about, particularly in the United States, much less so in Australia, is the idea of establishing a new open source intelligence agency. I mean, it's an idea that's been around really since the 90s, but seems to be getting a lot more currency at the moment. Just to give one example, uh, Amy Zegger, who's a professor at Stanford, makes the argument that uh, as long as open source intelligence remains embedded in secret agencies that value clandestine information above all, it will languish. Quite a damning statement. Do you agree or have other thoughts on that? Well, I did very much enjoy reading Amy's book, and, and I do agree with large parts of it. Uh, I will say that I think that the... Um, open source enterprises that we have have to partner carefully with outside organizations. But I don't know that I agree it has to be on the outside. I actually have a lot of confidence in the new head of our open source enterprise um, that you quoted earlier, Randy Nixon. So I I think that, you know, when you have innovative, forward-leaning people in those roles, that they can do the public-private partnerships that are necessary to move the intelligence community forward. So I guess I don't think I agree with her on that. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. That's that, that's that's a quite a nice optimistic note to end on. I think so. Yeah, we 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 also wish the best to to Randy Nixon and to Open Source Enterprise at CIA. Um, but just finally, yes. So once again, thank you, Barbara, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on this really important topic. That was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 